Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. The first hour is general questions about media production. And today we have a large panel of experts around accessibility. So if you have any of those questions that you want answered, drop those into our first hour. The second hour, we pick a topic that we want to spend more time on. And today we're going to be talking about mobility. Vaughn Harris and Danny Izzy will be with us to have that conversation. But right now, let's get into these questions. Mitchell, what's our first question? Thank you, Laura. First question in from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. Alex asks, how do you think AI can be used to increase accessibility for events and media? Go ahead, Brendan. Brendan. So, hi. So my, my, uh, how to improve AI events really is based knowledge about what people think with like captioning or, you know, having that for events, but there are lots of different ways to improve it and uh, use it. And I would say, for example, captioning is one AI, uh, that does help with captioners. It's automatic. You can you listen to the language and translate that into whatever variety of language you need or into the captions. Another example would be automatic, like figuring out the like to pin the person or later. So say, I, I guess more future thinking you can add to make that person look, uh, watch where their eyes are. Or if say you have someone who's autistic who doesn't look at the screen and they're looking at something else, that way you can focus to where they're looking so it's more eye contact. So that's what something AI can do. And I would say also... Another one, I would, and I, I've been working to advise a company, a startup, have English ASL, and that an AI can figure out how to do that, take that English and translate that into American Sign Language, and using a 3D avatar to put that into the event. But that's only for one kind, or in a movie. If, like on Netflix, say you want to. <laughs> you want to watch signing instead of captioning. You have that option there, for example. And there are many different possibilities. Also, to, let's see, change things and make things things fit the person's needs as well. For example, maybe they have a problem reading. And they can make that slower and everything. There are lots of options to do with AI, and that can help uh, different events. Thank you. Um, what are the panel's thoughts about things like the um, automated accessibility on websites and um, things of that nature? I personally have noticed that they're not, they don't get everything. It's better than nothing, but I worry that those who are uninformed may lean on that and not do the human testing. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Next Laura, question. I'm not a big fan of those types oh. of accessibility tools where they're 
just baked into the website itself and not necessarily taking advantage of your overall software that you use for accessibility because you may have to relearn 15 different ways for 15 different websites to interact with those accessibility tools. Whereas your software that you have, you know the shortcut that should work on every website. And sometimes it actually breaks the accessibility for your software. I totally agree. And I don't think that sometimes the um, AI generated like tagging and some of that stuff is as accurate as it can be. And I think um, there's some of these, I can't think of the name of it off the top, but I know certain like Disney and uh, even Twit uses it. Um, that it's like an all in one, one and done. And I just worry that people won't actually pay attention to um, there's nothing like actually taking a screen reader and going through a website or a piece of software and doing a real human audit. And I just worry that that's going to become the standard of 50% is enough. Brenda, did you have something else to add? Yeah. So I, I work with uh, Laura and it's, you know, not good to have an overlay. I, I recommend you don't do that because it's easier. It's like a, a brand and it does cause problems. Lots of times, for example, you have uh, access IBE for the overlay and the, it's how does a blind person find that? They don't know to touch on that one. And that that's, it's not helpful at all. And it doesn't always work. Some do, some don't. I think in some situations, either with your website or whatever you're doing, you're trying to make it more accessible as possible and natural. You want to build it in. You don't want to put an overlay on or what someone else has done. You want to just put it on and then that causes more and more problems. And that will be even a worse experience in the first place. You want to make sure you fix it right the first time. I totally agree. Um, that is, there's, there's a saying in a lot of the people that I talk to that there's nothing like actually having a person who's proficient with a screen reader go through, check the website, check the, check the software and have it actually um checked by a real human um let's go to the, what do we have next mitch yeah actually it's a question for me laura so i'll ask it uh what are the biggest do's and don'ts with zoom when joining office hours go ahead mitchell Okay, I know I kicked it to myself, so I thought it was an interesting uh, subject to bring up since we have so many new panelists. Um, a couple of things that you, you should be aware of when you come on office hours, sometimes with other people on their Zoom meetings. Um, some of the things to look out for, original sound on or off. And it's counterintuitive in terms of what it's asking. But basically, if you have original sound off 
uh, it means that you're allowing Zoom to uh, deal with uh, the processing of the audio and the reduction of noise and things in the background. Uh, the uh, When you have it on, generally, you have something on your system that is processing the uh, the microphone output uh, via the uh, uh, mix pre or something like that, and you might be using noise assist. So original sound on or off. I know it's kind of backwards, but uh, that's the uh, the first thing I'd check for. Uh, the other thing is to avoid using Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is just not 100% uh, good. Sometimes it's fine, but other times it's not. So the best way to come in and do a Zoom meeting is with a wired Ethernet connection because then you know that the uh, the quality is going to be as good as it can possibly be. And then uh, finally, at least on my list of do's and don'ts, uh, no virtual backgrounds ever. Very good. Thank you. Um, I would also say that uh, the adage that you need more time than you think to get to the show is always a good one to remember. Um, we start onboarding an hour before the show, and um, we really like to have everybody on stage and through the lobby process half an hour before show starts so that we can be comfortable and nobody's rushing at the last second, including our crew in the control room. Um, so yeah, that's kind of some of the big ones. Let's go to our next. Oh, you have a, you want to come back again, Mitchell? Yeah, sorry about. I just jumped in. Uh, that's that's important. If you're a reader, your job is also to do the panel checks, and the panel checks are supposed to be done uh, at thirty on the hour, uh, half an hour before showtime. And if we have a delay on onboarding panelists, um, and it goes back to forty, uh, then we're starting to bump into things that have to happen behind the scenes. So specific to being a uh, panelist on a Zoom call through uh, office hours, it's important that uh, you try, not always possible, to come in at uh, by the bottom of the hour uh, at 30 so that uh, they can have plenty of time to A, do the test, and then B, right after we do the test, they build the super sources and things, some back-end things. But that was just the other part I wanted to add. Thank you. And what's our next question? Andy Kortkendorfer from Vieira, Florida is asking, what is the current preferred cellular IP solution other than a live view? Still PepLink? Thanks. Go ahead, John. There's about a half a dozen of these devices out there. The PepLink's popular on Office Hours. I know Alex Lindsay has used the PepLink. We have another one from Keenan, which is the Disaster Group. So if you go to disastergroup.us, he's got a specific uh, modem that does bonding as well. That's very, very competitive against the peplink uh, disastergroup.us. Thank you. Um, what's the, what's the, John, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what the difference between the peplink and Keenan's um, just a real quick 30 second of what the difference of the two of them are? They're very, very similar. They're both bonded cellular devices. And so they have, they have multiple different carriers. I think the difference between the Peplink and, and Keenan specifically is Keenan's device comes with with the cards already provisioned by by the company. And the Peplink, you have to go out and you have to create those accounts yourself and put in the SIM cards into the device. So this simplifies the process of people 
just buying the hardware and turning it on. We used it for the party when we had the party for office hours for NAB. And we streamed for four hours without any hiccups in it at all. Beautiful. So I, I imagine that the other part of that is also making sure that you know that that which one's going to work better in your particular because one cellular company can work in one place and you go two blocks down the street and you get no signal. So very good. Next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida comes in. I'm about to get new glasses, and I want to consider any factors for being on camera. With computer monitors and studio lights in front of me, what lens types and coatings, tint, and every other upsell should I consider, and what should I avoid? Go ahead, Mandy. As a longtime glasses wearer myself, um, since the age of eight, um, I typically need to make the same decisions for new glasses about every year or two, um, and I will always request anti-reflective coating so that my glasses don't become a mirror to what I'm looking at in the camera. Um, Anti-glare is also helpful for toning down effects of lights coming in. Um, I also go for high index lens materials because my prescription is high. It's around negative eight and my lenses will be thinner and lighter with that prescription. And another go-to for me is transition lenses. Those darken in the sun and around UV light and they gradually decrease as you're going indoors. Those are very helpful when I'm outdoors. I don't know, you, you mentioned being in a studio, so I'm not sure if outdoors is a consideration, but if you don't want your tint to change on your glasses when you're outdoors, don't get the type of the transition kind of lenses, but I rather enjoy those. And last but not least, consider your frames. Uh, you might want to go for a matte finish rather than something shiny like plastic or metal frames um, that will reflect light. Um, and feel free to take your lights with you to the when you're selecting your frames. Mitchell, you had something to add? Yeah, sure. Mandy, you are exactly right. And I just bought a new set of not frames, but uh, lenses because I'd scratched them. And the first thing you can do uh, if you're in a studio environment is make sure that your key light is above your eye line. So like, for example, if I tilt my head back, there it is. That's the dreaded reflection and you don't want that. Uh, the other thing is, as you said, coatings are available for uh, lenses. And uh, while I was sitting there with the optometrist, I uh, said, oh, we have coatings that will reduce the glare. And I said, oh, great. And uh, they showed them to me and they worked great. And then I said, how much? And they said, $250. And I said, no, thank you. So uh, there are some practical things that you can do to uh, reduce glare and other uh, considerations. Uh, I went with uh, small and clear frames. Uh, so to try to reduce the uh, the darkness around my eyes and such. And how am I doing? You're looking good. Mandy, did you want to jump back in? Yes, I just remembered. I purposely requested to not get the special blue light blocker kind of things that they've been asking me to put in my lenses every year this time around because of Zoom. <laughs> yes, that is important. Mitchell, what's our next question? Next one in from Alex Lindsay. Name, name should sound familiar from Novato, California. 
What do you think are the most important accessibility challenges for media professionals? Brendan? So there's a few things. How to best integrate the person with whatever media you're doing. So I used to be part of different events and meta um, as I was a self AD. So I would set up, you know, make sure the screen's not set up. So like, like, and also some wheelchairs, like people stand. And so they usually put it down to where people are standing and you're missing the person in the wheelchair if they're there. Um, and again, also how to communicate best, know how to communicate with best people. I don't speak. I use my hands. Uh, what kind of signal could you give me if it was my turn to go? And a visual too, that's very challenging as well. We all are trying to figure out different ways to have something visual and, and make it work. Um, so when I, you just learn, you kind of learn from experiences and go from there. And you want to make sure that when I sign you're I'm in the frame and you're not missing what I sign. And so like with a blind person, they can't see. So you have to give them the proper auditory cues. And there's just a different variety of things to be become accessible. And important too, and keep it simple as possible. We're having the discussion. Uh, you know, some don't go, don't talk about other, you know, high level things want to go off and keep things to the point. Thank you. Um, Brendan, you had, what, what are your thoughts? Sorry, I was just looking at the interpreter and now we've switched interpreters, Michael's saying. Okay. Hi. Yes. Okay. I was sorry. I was looking at the other screen and now we have switched interpreter. Um, yeah. Good morning, everyone. So um, really my first point would be with media specifically, um, there's different meetings behind the word media. So I think in this context, for this example, when we're talking about media, we're talking about the news, we're talking lots of different varieties of types of media, different perspectives on media, different areas. Um, another point would be that there are many um, people that provide classes, for example, let's say um, Premiero or FCK, um, they're different classes, they're eight-week courses, um, that sort of thing. So um, what I've found in my experience is that it can be really challenging, um, two things in particular. The first thing is I know that um, for Lynn.com, um, lind.com for that particular website. Um, there's a lot of users. There's a lot going on at that website. And so the problem then is on that particular website, um, when we're watching videos, let's say, on the website of a person that's doing a presentation, um, of course, um, you have to look at the caption, right? And then as we're looking at the caption, um, then they're giving examples, they're pointing to things in their presentation. So then by the time I look up, I've missed what was being shown, right? So, cause I'm reading the caption. So then I'd have to go back and rewatch it and then see what they're pointing to and what they're indexing once I've seen the caption. So I really wish that that website in particular could move the captioning to a different location on the screen. And then, um, 
I would be able to see what they're pointing at and be able to make those modifications. My other point was, is that if you're taking a course, um, no, no, no course in particular, but if you're taking a course and you request a sign language interpreter, they say, well, we can't afford that. That's not in our budget. Um, then, you know, they would set up some sort of video relay service to provide the interpreting services. And then there's a spot on the screen for that. Um, and so we often have to look to a different screen to see the interpreter, look back at the presentation. So you can see how that would become problematic, right? So it's very frustrating to have to look back and forth. If the interpreter is part of the meeting, right? So that it's the sign, the interpreter is incorporated into the screen. It's part of the meeting, which is wonderful because then I can watch the presenter. I wish that um, there would be like, they would offer a professional class on how to spotlight interpreters on how to make it more accessible so that we know exactly where to look instead of, you know, looking at an arrow or maybe looking at some, you know, some other location. So that way we can look at their close in proximity and that interpreter is always in that same area. So I found that that's really the biggest challenge for me. Um, to those two challenges, the classes and then trying to access things, um, that have captioned while they're doing a training. So I hope that kind of answers your question and clarifies. Um, but if you have any other further questions, please let me know. One of the other things I wanted to ask, particularly are too deaf about, but also anybody else could weigh in on the um, ability to for people to address you and not your helper interpreter um brendan do you have any thoughts on that or anything else you want to sure yeah go ahead brendan That's actually a good point. Um, I had a funny situation happen to me before. Um, they'll say, please tell, they'll, they'll talk to the interpreter, please tell the deaf person. And I'll say, just speak directly to me. They say, oh, I'm sorry. And then they'll redirect their question to me. They never really realize because I've never spoke with a deaf person before, which is understandable. And we can, you know, explain that quickly, but um, that happens from time to time. And then after, you know, it's corrected, it's fine after that. So, you know, that does happen. And I appreciate that because, um, there's a lot of things to consider when using an interpreter. Another thing I would add is exactly what you're saying about the captioning. Um, you know, if you're able to have a screen set up where a deaf person, you know, has access and or a person that's low vision, they have a very specific vision, you know, scope that they can see through. They have to be able to manage where the interpreter is on the screen. Instead of trying to focus on the interpreter, it's very small, very difficult to see. Imagine as imagine if you were watching that same webcam or same web you know, show and you were trying to constantly look at who was speaking or you only saw a very short, you know, range of vision. So imagine how difficult that would be, what a challenge that would be. So it really would be great if we could be aware of those issues. Yes. Thank you. Um, with that being said, um, you know, we have a great discussion going here. It's We have a little bit more time for uh, questions. Please go to Mukana. I just, this is Michael. I just wanted to say something real quick, if I could. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just wanted to add that, um, you know, what I often experience is I ask people to please 
kind of do like almost a role reversal. Um, and so if they're hearing people there and they're watching, you know, something on Lynn.com or any kind of training or tutoring, um, if they could just put on, put the, their, the self on mute, and then that way we're all familiar with, you know, how that is people will, you know, have themselves and, you know, like, and any other type of program, they don't know how to use that. And so they'll watch it, um, without the sound. Um, and then that way they kind of understand where we're all coming from, right? We're all on the same page. And so that's something that I, I, I use often. So, um, you know, I would ask the interpreters, um, like if they're very small or very far away in the screen, if the interpreter could come a little closer, that way I can see the signs and maybe one of the other interpreters can voice, maybe that would be best. Um, we can maybe um, have, is there a way to do that today where maybe just the one interpreter that's closer could do the signing and then the other interpreter that's further away can maybe do the voicing? Is there a way to set that up? And I, I don't mean to, you know, derail what we're doing now, but I'm just wondering if that's something we can do. And, and Brett's saying, yeah, if we could do something like that. I, it, I didn't think of it until just now, but I think I need more coffee. <laughs> so, here, see, I have my coffee right here, Brennan's saying, yeah, see, I'll yeah. keep drinking, right? Um, let's see if we can get that coordinated in the panel chat. Um, in Mukana. And also, um, yeah. And the one other thing that you were saying, the point you were making on this question about um, the idea that, you know, things are just um, being open to feedback. And like you just said, that is very important. Um, we can see if we can get that uh, coordinated for you. Okay, sure. So before before we go to the next question, um, just a reminder to our audience that panel that uh, voting on questions and to add those questions, um, we'll, we'll be talking more about mobility in the second hour. And Mitchell, what's our next question? Sure. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida is asking, live computer generated closed caption continues to get faster, more reliable and multilingual. Does that eventually become preferable to ASL? Brandon? My answer is it depends. It depends on the person, right? So um, we've been used to having captioning for years and years. It's been around for a long time. So we have caption on videos, and but some are missing, right? Some don't have captioning. So... Um, I think, you know, interpreters use American Sign Language, which is different than English, um, understand that, you know, when we're talking, I think we talked about this last week, but it really depends on the person and their preference, um, if they're hard of hearing, if they identify as hard of hearing or deaf. Um, there's a wide range of users, right? There are deaf people that are um, culturally and completely deaf and they're well-educated, um, but English is their second language. And so they may prefer American Sign Language as opposed to typed English. Um, so... Um, I think it's nice um, that they have that live, live caption, and that's great. But I think it really would be a preference. Some people would definitely prefer a sign language interpreter as opposed to the written English because it may not be as competent. ESL, American Sign Language, may be their first language. English may be their second language. And so um, they may have a preference. It really would depend on the person. So, Yes. And I think that's one of the things that we're talking about accessibility in general. It's an open communication. You've got to keep that open dialogue. And I, uh, I know right. that I've, I've been in situations where 
um, my, uh, you know, I'll be in different situations and people will try to, they see the, they see the white cane or they see the dog and they try to grab me and, uh, you know, push me or pull me or, and it's very disconcerting, even with a little bit of sight, I do have to have somebody touch me without some form of warning that they're going to do so. And I can't imagine what that would be like for like, and I've always said, I'll be the first one to say, I am the one thing I am most terrified of is losing my hearing because I rely on, it's like, I'm, I'm audio first, audio and tactile first and visual second. And that is just one of those things where, yeah, it's the open communication is absolutely the, um, you know, don't, it's, I'm not going to be offended if you ask, I'm going to be more offended if you try to do something without asking. Brendan, you had another comment? Yeah, communication. Absolutely. Open communication. I think you're right. That's very important um, to do what the person prefers, whoever it is, right? Whatever they need, whatever their needs are, whatever their preference is. So I just had another thought I wanted to add too. Um, I know, you know, with automatic caption, it will not show any other environmental clues, um, gunshots or any anything. All that is missing. AI cannot hear, if you will, um, other things that are going around that's happening, someone breathing hard in the background. AI can't pick that up. Um, so, you know, American Sign Language includes all of that. You know, they'll say, hey, this person's breathing hard. This person's reacting this way. So you get the whole picture, which is very nice, right? Whereas you wouldn't get that with the AI captioning. Mitchell, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, as a sighted person, it's interesting what you said about approaching uh, a person uh, that uh, may need some help crossing a street uh, crossing or something like that. How would you approach someone uh, that has some kind of sighting uh, issue that uh, may or may not want you to help them across the, uh, the intersection? What do you do as a sighted person? I want to know how the best way to approach. The first thing to approach is you want to approach the person, give them, you know, introduce yourself offer to help and then listen to what they're saying. Don't assume, never assume they need help, never assume they want the help. And just because somebody made this point the other day, just because the way they do it doesn't look like what you think it should look like, as long as they're getting the job done and they're not going to get hit by a car, say at an intersection, let them go. Um, a lot, it's an independence thing for us. And, um, somebody the other day just told me a story about an elderly woman that was, looked like they were struggling to do something, but to her, it wasn't a struggle, but to our perception, it was a struggle just because it was slower and more methodical. Didn't mean that she was necessarily struggling. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, Logitech Pro X2 headset supports Bluetooth and wired connections and DTS headphones X2.0. What would this sound like on Zoom? Paul, that's a really good question. I, um, 
think that you ought to get one and try it out and let us know. Do you have any ideas, Mitchell? I, I don't have the answer either, but I think that's a good question for Wednesday's uh, audio special. So uh, if you don't mind, uh, Paul, ask it again on Wednesday when we have all the audio experts here. They could give you a better heads up. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asks, what can you tell us about second audio program, SAP, and descriptive video service and content available to Braille Reader? I actually don't read Braille, so this is kind of an interesting question. I'm not familiar with descriptive audio. Um, I will tell you, I think Apple does some of the best audio description I've ever heard on their events. Um, audio description, if not done well, can collide with the um, the actual track of whatever you're watching. Hershey, do you want to weigh in? Sure. Uh, so with regards to Braille and uh, even the, qu the question previously we spoke about, it's important that uh, we kind of merge some of these technologies together so we're helping each other. Um, for people that have hearing loss, as we just mentioned, like the, you know, you hear a bang and it's a gunshot or whatever you heard in the, the program or the TV show. And you kind of do get that with audio description. So SAP is usually second audio programming. Um, secondary could be uh, Spanish language as well for multilingual. Uh, so sometimes if you're watching uh, sports on television, especially with football and uh, basketball, you'll find it in a Spanish uh, alternative language. Um, otherwise, for certain programming, and it's increasing with uh, regards to audio description, uh, other areas call it a little bit different uh, as far as namesake, but it all kind of means the same thing as far as uh, having a second audio channel, which describes what the content might have on the screen, such as uh, a uh, the inauguration or um, you know the the Grammys or what have you. So it's definitely a, a interesting tool and a uh, way of getting audio in, into the channel to get it out to program. Um, with adding the Braille component to it, it includes people that are deaf. And uh, that's definitely a great thing because I, I look at it as it's just mixing the captioning or the scripts that are written and sharing that information even across the the hearing loss spectrum could also be uh, pretty powerful just to make it, you know, one big content. So, you know, you have your a AAD or DA or CC as far as closed captioning. So we need to get some of these uh, acronyms and letters uh, more permanent, I think. I totally agree. Um, yeah, and I've just, I don't know, I will about you, Hershey, but I have seen some situations where the audio description actually collides with the dialogue in a um, TV show, particularly when they tried to go back and like do them after like something from the 80s or 90s. They're trying to add audio description to because it wasn't built that way. I definitely feel the experience is better when it's built with audio description in mind. Agreed. Next question. From Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. 
Who do you think is doing the best job at making their content accessible and why? Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, it depends on what you're looking at. There are the, there's a variety of different things in the media world, but the point is the company who is making their things accessible, um, you got to think of cost. Oh, but Apple is one. Apple is great. Google does a great job. And I'm thinking about big tech. So let me think of something. Uh, Nike does a great job. I know in the 1980s, they had all those big posters that would they were like, you have just do it. And, and that was really nice in signs. And I think I have that poster somewhere in my room. You can't see it, unfortunately. Um, I'd have to move my camera to see it. But that's a great poster. And that was in sign language in Just Do It. And that way you consider just the different kind of content from back then and how it happened. But for generally, I noticed there are some movie studios that are not captioning still. Uh, it's one thing, you know, we want to have a caption in there and you just want to, instead of, you know, every film just want to like Pixar, Pixar is a great example. They always have it. It depends on their budget. Sometimes whoever makes that mistake and overlooks it, it's not perfect, but they still do a great job of providing caption uh, uh, in their movies always. Like if I sit in the movie theater with my wife and my kids, they want to go to some popular movie. I'll sit there and there'll be almost nothing I can watch. And I'm just sitting there, but I get super excited when there are captions or when there's like a blank up there or when there are captions. And that would be great if they always had captions, but they don't always have captions at the movie theater in movies. And it's a huge world too. It's globally. I think who is, it just depends on the time and place and the person and who actually touches the content. Uh, Michael, is that your thoughts as well? Just waiting to pin Michael. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brendan. It's interesting. Uh, if you look at announcements by Apple, when they make like a formal announcement of any new product, if you look at it in ASL, you can play, it says say in ASL. And what they do is they have a deaf interpreter, not a hearing interpreter, they have a deaf interpreter. And that's amazing. The deaf interpreter can sign and is very clear. The deaf interpreter knows what's the appropriate sign. Hearing, hearing people do sign too, but it's nice to have a deaf interpreter. You can't beat a deaf interpreter. And second thing that's interesting, I still, still today, I don't understand why Americans still haven't captioned all the movies, all of them. I still, I still don't get it. I don't understand. In fact, when I went to the Tribeca Film Festival, it's supposed to be, you know, the most famous film festival. And they said, oh yeah, we will have open captions. When I see it says open captioning, it makes me nervous. Because that means they're bringing in a device. So when I come in, I, I need captions. They will look, search around for the little device they need, the little reader. 
while I'm waiting with my friends to get into the theater, when they give it to me, it takes them 15 minutes to then connect it to my chair. So I'm sitting there waiting and waiting. And then finally, we're all set. We're good to go. And the movie starts. And they forgot to make sure the film is actually captioned. (laughs) So Americans, but if you look at the rest of the world, they're all captioning their films, all of them. It's only America. And I do not understand. And not only that, it's not just for deaf people only. It's for people who are losing their hearing late who are senior citizens who are who've lost their hearing. And with the technology we have today, why can't we make that change? Thank you. I absolutely agree with you. It's it's like the same thing with um, alt tags on pictures for screen re- on graphics for screen readers. Um, there's quite often it's easy to alt tag things. If you, if you just take the time to do it. Um, and Brendan, you had something else you wanted to add? Yes. I was uh, laughing when you're saying movies. Yeah, I, that just came up. Uh, and very important thing here, yeah, with America. Subtitle world. We pen, you know, we always outsource those to a different thing. We think, okay, they're ready for the world. We have subtitles and that's great. but. We Americans, we just don't do it. So I think we, you know, have captions in English. No, because we need to, you know, have deaf, senior, therefore people who can't hear. There are people who have audio delays and they can't totally understand what a person is saying. Their mind, it doesn't work in their mind. So we have captions that way they can catch everything. Now devices. Make me angry as well sometimes because I'll come into a movie theater. Okay, hopefully I get this little screen reader that goes in, but it's embarrassing, you know, because sometimes people will get behind me and it blocks their viewing as well. It makes me nuts. Oh, I'm sorry. Or or also that point of it uh, not turning on. They'll have to go back out and get it to say, you need to come and come and turn this on. They're like, oh, sorry, we forgot about that. Or, oh, sorry, we didn't do this. I see with deaf people. They're like, okay, we get it work. We got it set up and everything. And then, you know, maybe the battery dies or it's just not catching, you know, the signal or anything like that. So we just have all these problems and it's just not worth it. And Michael, I have my hand raised too. (laughs) Go ahead, Michael. And I think one of the most ironic things is if you remember the name of the movie that won Best Picture, I think two years ago now, I'm trying to remember, goodness, what's the name? It was a foreign film, uh, maybe three years ago, Parasite, that won for Best Picture. It's a foreign film with captions. I mean, America is ready for captions. Often, uh, you know, I live in New York City and I meet lots of different people, lots of famous people over here. And they often say, well, 
you know, captions ruin the aesthetic and the art of the film. That's their excuse. I I I agree that um, it doesn't have to ruin the aesthetic of the film. Um, we're about 15 minutes out from the top of the hour and we're going to have our conversation with our guests, but there's still time. Vote on the questions. We probably will not get through everything. Let's um, see which ones you want to hear us talk about next. Next question. All right, Robert Sababody from Poland asks, Michael, do you prefer seeing the signer on the screen larger than the speaker or the speaker larger than the signer? Go ahead, Brendan. Michael first, actually. Okay. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, for so for like a, some this situation, they're all the same size. Um, cause right now I'm looking at a panel view where I see a bunch of different screens, but the second interpreter is, uh, oh, they just adjusted their screen. So it looks much better. You'll see them soon. <laughs> and so if you have a class and you're taking a class with one speaker all the way with maybe once in a while, there's questions. then I definitely, what I would do is pin the interpreter. So they are bigger on my screen, but for something like this, I like when they're all the same size, that way I can see that what people's reactions are in the room. If there's some nodding, I can see, like I can see Rashid, uh, he's got a smiling face and laughing when I make a comment. And that's, you know, that's the best when that best picture one. So that's important to see, to be able to get a feel of the room and what's happening in the room. Brendan? I agree. Um, I do have different size boxes that I can, that way I can see what people are, you know, how they look, what their tone is, how they're communicating. Um, I really appreciate that. I love people. You know, I love that. So my other point too would be that um, for meetings or different events with interpreters, I'll make the interpreter a little larger, um, maybe at the top of the screen. Um, I'll have, you know, one screen large and then at the top, I'll have the other participants. So for switching interpreters, sometimes I get lost. So I'll make sure that both interpreters are on screen. I'll pin both interpreters so that I can see them the entire time. And then I can also look at the panelists or the people on the zoom. So it really kind of depends on the situation. Um, for a presentation, um, definitely would make the, the interpreter larger, wouldn't care about the other participants, but I would want to see the interpreter the entire time. So it kind of would really, really depend um, I do have them in my line of sight, the other participants, but again, you know, I don't want to miss anything. So I would definitely make the presenter bigger in that particular situation. Thank you. So um, as far as uh, this goes, it's always an ongoing conversation and every person is different. And just because we've answered a question here with these particular, with these people, Please do not generalize that to everyone. The best thing to do is to ask. Mitchell, what's our next question? It's all the way from Breckenridge, Colorado. It's Jack Rupel asking, since MidJourney can produce vector and SVG, is it just a small step for it to produce USD or USDZ content? John? 
Not sure if MidJourney themselves are going to step into the 3D world. If you go to futuretools.io and search for 3D, you'll find 47 other companies touting 3D. And then, of course, expect to see it from Autodesk and from also um, from, um, from from Apple and uh, and then the big 3D companies. So I suspect generative 3D will be here soon um, from from the established 3D vendors in the marketplace. Yeah, um, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. AI is a huge space. It's moving fast. Um, so uh, it's going to be an ongoing conversation here and in elsewhere. So next question. Douglas Carmichael is here asking, Melee has introduced Smart Food ID, whether ovens can recognize what you're cooking and suggest settings accordingly. As a connected and smart technology permeates the home, could it have positive effects on those with disabilities? When it works, it works. Um, I will say that it's it's nice to have, but this is like the same conversation they have around Braille. Um, you know, do we need to teach children who are born with no sight or very limited sight how to read Braille? My answer is still absolutely yes. What happens if we have a major blackout? And they need to get something done. Brendan, did you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's very cool. Um, I don't know if I've seen this in particular. I've seen other things similar to this. Samsung has um, a smart um, appliance or a smart display that you can use, which is great. Um, and you can add cameras, especially it's nice for deaf people. They can communicate via camera. That would be very cool um, for deaf people for tech. Um, blind people um, who need to navigate their world. They can um, make food themselves. If they have a camera of where they're cooking, you know, it really kind of would depend on how it was set up. I know I've spoken with other deaf, um, blind deaf people or blind people um, about how they go about cooking. And um, if you could add that tech, that would be beneficial, I think. Um, for like phone apps, we have those um, that opens the door for other things, or excuse me, it opens the door. Um, and then they're able to navigate through the house. Um, and if there's a, something that can help people cook, um, that would be great. Um, I think it, you know, they can see things visually a little easier. I think it would assist blind people in, in a way that, um, they could kind of navigate that space for cooking. So, um, I think that's coming in the future. I think we'll see more of that coming. Um, I think it's important to level the playing field and we are just speaking, you know, all of us kind of just speaking about the same thing. Um, and so I think, you know, I, we can add that. I think it really does kind of um, allow more opportunities for that. Um, like if you, if you have that, you know, we'll have that opportunity. So I think that definitely is coming to the home. Uh, that's coming to cars as well. Um, parking, where to park, how to park, um, parking assistance, you know, AI is using that. So there's cameras and um, visuals um, to help with that. So I think there's lots of applications that are coming in the future. Um, did you want to say something? Anything else you want to add to that? Michael saying, wow, yeah, you know, um, really, I don't really have an answer for that, but I'm hoping that we can have those goggles tested soon. That would be great, you know, um, if we could have goggles do that kind of thing or some kind of device you put on your on your eyes. Yeah. Michael, did you want to say something else? Yeah, I just want to say I just wanted to kind of add that um, just what Brennan was saying. Um, 
what's your name sign? Okay. I just want to make sure, boy, it's a powerful name sign. I like that. Anyway. Um, so I think, you know, talking about goggles, um, you know, like, um, vision pro, um, I know that is from Apple and, um, that's kind of on the retail level. People have asked me about that. Um, and they were asking about captioning, if there would be application for captioning, um, when someone's speaking and then it would generate captioning, um, like on a screen, um, like, please turn on this or that. Um, and so we would have something, it would almost be like you would have a keyboard and then that would be without answering that you just have like an actual keyboard and they would create or generate a caption or a video. There's so many things and, you know, something with vision pro that we could do. I hope that we'll be able to use that out in the deaf greater community, um, for native signers to be able to test and pilot that. Um, I know that there's been some consideration around that. And really, there's so many different ranges of, of deaf people, so many different types of deaf people and users, native users that use American Sign Language. There are deaf people that um, grew up that way, deaf people that um, went to hearing schools and mainstream and use signed English, not American Sign Language, some that use American Sign Language. So those are kind of two different perspectives on how this technology um, you know, would assist them and assist them and would work for deaf people in general. Um, because, you know, really now I'm just a little bit of background. Um, so at Gallaudet University, um, they have only two deaf colleges in the world that are specifically for deaf people too. Um, Gallaudet University is one and they have about 800 students, 800 deaf students, um, hard of hearing deaf students, out of, I mean, how many millions and millions and millions of deaf people, uh, thousands and thousands of deaf people. So, you know, 0.01% of the deaf population is there at Gallaudet University. And among that population, you know, we can't speak for all deaf people, of course, in the world, um, but they are kind of speaking as a representation for the entire deaf world. So as a native deaf person who uses American Sign Language or a person that's blind or uses different um, mobility devices, um, you know, assistive devices. So there are lots of different people we're talking about in that category. Thank you both so much. It is, it's such a breath of fresh air to have lived experiences on the panel. Um, Mitchell, what's our next question? Marty Anderson from Roseville asks, it sounds like some disabilities contradict each other and how they need their accessibility to translate. So there would be a difficulty in trying to provide for both at the same time. Does anyone know a working list of these anywhere out on the web? I don't know of a working list of anything like this out on the web. Um, But that would be something for us to do some research on, or maybe even the uh, power of the office hours community try to create something. But my other my other caution is anything with accessibility, when you're trying to compile a list, it's just a guide. You always want to go back to the person you are working with and ask them for their recommendations, their their needs. Exactly. Um, because Brenda, did you have something you wanted oh, just to add to, to that? Yeah, just exactly. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, it, if, if I could just add real quick too. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit um, to that and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you. But um, 
you're right. Always ask and refer back to the person, right? What they specifically need. Um, if there's an issue or other issues that arise, make sure you include them in that. Um, you know, um, also, you know, having ADHD, um, that's not the only concern, right? That's not the same for everyone, but, um, you know, asking the person, referring back to them, um, and, you know, you can't cover everything. I mean, you try, there might be something you, you, you try to meet their, accommodate them and meet their needs. Um, so like, let's say for me, you know, I would need a sign language interpreter. That's fine. We can do that. We've got that. Right. Um, but for other things, you know, in general, for the greater community, providing different services um, for whatever they need, you know, kind of would depend on what they would want, you know, what Google has a captioning or if they have ASL or American Sign Language, kind of would really depend. And you'll have those services ready um, for whatever you'd need. But uh, other countries, you know, they may not provide an interpreter. So that may be kind of an exception to the rule. So go ahead. Back to you, Laura. Michael saying, yeah, yeah I, if I could, uh, if I could add to, yeah, I, I agree. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I agree with Brendan saying, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have the same answer, really. I mean, yeah, nothing to add. <laughs> I, I guess, I, and it's good for me to hear from the two of you, because I'm always in the, when people come to me and say, oh, I'm, I'm working with this person or this situation's coming up in my professional life. What do I, what can you tell me? How do I accommodate best? My answer is always first, go talk to the, to the person you're working directly with. If you're uncomfortable, acknowledge that. And from there, have that conversation. I have, I've met very few, um, very few disabled people or that need access, any form of accessibility that were unwilling to have a conversation and were happier for you to make decisions for them. Next question. And it's from Eduardo Augustine, all the way in Panama. What is the ideal approach for accessibility? What is more effective, an interpreter with a sign language or having closed captioning in a live show? Go ahead, Michael. Oh, okay. It's interesting because <clears throat> for a live show, ironically, <laughs> Um, really, um, from my apartment, I'm streaming from my apartment and really, you know, for a show like this, for like a talk show. Um, and so for something like that, it's, you know, some of that's broadcast very close to where I live. And so, um, you know, if you go there, they always provide an interpreter. Um, they have a live show and they always have an interpreter in person because it's not often that, um, you can get tickets to get in, to be honest. And so now there's two different kinds of live shows, right? So that particular live show close to me, that is very specific and they tend to just have interpreters because it's rarely captioned. Um, and then, but for another type of live show, like if you go to, let's say some kind of special event or you host, it's something hosted by, you know, a deaf event or, Let's say some, there's all different types of events, right? So if you go to one and they offer, like they may offer captioning um, and they'll say like cart, it's cart services that are offered. Um, so those are displayed. And then you'll have an interpreter and, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll watch the interpreter and, you know, like they'll explain to me, you know, before they'll say, oh, we have a wide range of services, 
um, they'll say here, you know, we have two interpreters that are doing a great job. Thank you both to the interpreters today. They're doing an amazing job. So, but for many events that I've go to, they may not hire the best interpreters. And so what happens is, you know, I'll just go ahead and watch the cart services instead of watching the interpreters, to be honest. Um, the cart service is really more relaxing because I can, you know, kind of see what's going on. This interpreter may be still processing before they can put out the message from English to ASL. It does take some processing and there's a little bit of a lag. So it may be easier to just watch both or watch what's being captioned. So that's kind of how I feel about that. I know um, for this particular captioning is very small in this live event. So I just prefer to watch the interpreter for this particular event. But yeah, I tend to watch the captioning. Um, okay, over to you. I think they're going to switch interpreters now. Very cool. Michael, you made me think you, different situations. Like I have made, I've gone to many different events before and it's more, some people love to be participating. And I, I do that. And I said, Hey, do you mind? Do I have an interpreter from this agency? Someone who I trust. I want to make sure there's someone I get, so I know that they're a great interpreter and I don't want to, you know, miss out or I bring my own interpreter because I know they know me and my style and they're going to be able to speak for me. Like maybe they're very experienced speaking with me and they understand my thought process, but in general events, it's good to provide both because you don't hard of hearing people. It's not just so we think about deaf access, but you also got to think about hard of hearing access. Hey, I'm so behind. I can't hear anything, but great. I can see the captions on screen. And even still, I have to educate people and improve their access and tell them who needs to actually use these uh, avenues. And there are still very lots of places who don't. Um, say if you go to a country event, like a dinner, and they'll say, no, we won't provide interpreters. And I will, but uh, government, they usually tend to bid for who's cheaper. And not always the best quality interpreters are the cheapest quality interpreters. So I would make a complaint with that kind of thing. But it goes, it's a wide range. Oh, and Michael seems to have his hand raised again. Go ahead, Michael. Just waiting for the camera, Michael saying. Great. Thank you, Brendan. And hi, Tim. Someone else has joined. Uh, maybe you don't know. Uh, Tim's wife is one of the best interpreters as well. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, one other thing, uh, one other pet peeve I have, and something to keep in mind often at events, they will hire an interpreter. Uh, without a deaf person asking, or a deaf person will ask either way, and that event wants to have an interpreter, and often the interpreter will say, hello, is there any deaf people here, anyone here, so I know, and if no one, no deaf, then they're like, well, why are we interpreting? <laughs> you know, don't ask the interpreter. If there's a deaf person there, just do your job and interpret. The interpreter is hired to interpret, actually interpret, regardless whether there's a deaf person there or not. And I, I had one interpreter ask me, well, what's my opinion? And I said, well, what do you think? Did you get paid? 
Yes. Well, then do you want the money to give it back if there were no deaf people there? No, 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 I don't. Then do your job. So that's what. So if interpreter, please don't ask the audience so if there's any deaf, because some deaf people are embarrassed to announce that they're deaf and you want to respect that and just do your interpretation. Thank you. Um, at this time, I'm going to ask uh, Tim to uh, hand over. I'm going to hand over hosting to Tim. Um, Tim, can you introduce our guests and uh, start the and uh, start the discussion? Sure thing. And and uh, I was excited to watch some of the questions, you know, start leaning towards the accessibility topic. So my name is Tim and welcome to the second hour of Accessibility Saturdays. And uh, we're looking forward to just continuing these conversations. Today, we're going to talk about mobility. Uh, we have two guests on today that we're going to chat with for a few minutes before we jump into questions. But please uh, go ahead and start asking questions, and especially as you hear Danny and Vaughn introduce themselves. So um, so I've said their names. So let me start with Danny and just ask a few questions so you can get to know each of them a little bit. Uh, we can know what to talk about. And I just want you to hear their stories and, and some of their topics. So Danny, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Danny Isaiah. I am a wheelchair user. Um, I've been a wheelchair user for 15 years now. My ability was acquired 15 years ago. And um, I am a mom to two uh, toddlers. I'm in the trenches right now. They're three years old. Um, I run and own a business doing uh, uh what I call disability inclusive marketing, um, social media marketing, digital uh, marketing, and brand consulting all kind of falls under that. And I'm also an advocate. Um, I recently came back from uh, an event called uh, the Roll on Capitol Hill, um, which is a yearly advocacy event organized by United Spinal Association, a nationwide organization um, that helps uh, people with mobility disabilities get involved in um, uh, policy change um, to kind of help with improve the lives of people with disabilities. So Danny, a uh, role on Capitol Hill, where can people go to find uh, a little more information on that and what was accomplished, uh, maybe what was not accomplished. Yeah, so I mean, you can head over to their website, unitedspinal.org, and um, I think you know the main issues this year were really um, air. Air travel is a big one. It's a big one because our wheelchairs get damaged all the time when we travel by air. Not just that, sometimes we get injured because in order to board the plane, we need to use all kinds of contraptions and lose access to our wheelchairs. Um, not to mention that we can't access the restrooms on board. So we have to dehydrate ourselves and do, go through all kinds of measures to be able to travel. Um, it is not an equitable experience uh, for wheelchair users. So we're working on a lot of legislation around that. 
uh, we uh, one of the other issues was um, getting coverage for um, other types of wheelchairs um, and features for wheelchairs, such as the wheelchairs that can stand. Right now, insurances don't cover standing wheelchairs, if you can believe that. It is not considered a medical necessity. Um, you can imagine that this is a pretty dehumanizing restriction. <laughs> so that's something we're really working hard on. Um, and there were a couple other issues we worked on, but those are kind of the two that stood out the most to me. So, Danny, I, I saw a news article recently <clears throat> about you and your family, um, and it it mentioned uh, a film. Can you just talk a little bit about that news article and the the film that they mentioned in that article? Yeah, sure. So, I've um, there's been quite a few articles and TV appearances, but the biggest one recently was CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, it, they featured a family, my husband and I and our twins, um, kind of told our story um, through the lens of me being a mom with a disability. Um, and the whole idea was to sort of normalize disability, really, to show that um, it's actually a lifestyle. You know, it doesn't have to be seen as something necessarily tragic um, we don't have to go through the same old narratives that we always go through when we look at disability, like a, a, something inspiring or something tragic. We could also just look at it for what it is. Like some people just live with this day to day and it's part of their lifestyle and it's perfectly normal to them. Um, so that was kind of how we told the story on CBS. And they also touched on the fact that uh, we were involved in a documentary film about my pregnancy um, and my pregnancy uh, was quite pretty high risk because technically I'm a quadriplegic um, and I was giving birth to twins, which is considered a high risk pregnancy. Added to that, it happened smack at the beginning of COVID. Uh, I gave birth in April, 2020. So kind of a triple high risk pregnancy but um the the documentary covered that and um yeah it was an incredible experience and it's actually out people can go watch it it's um on danny's twins film.com awesome and i know we'll learn more from danny as we go but um but i wanted to jump over to vaughn for a few minutes and and again i just want to ask a few questions just to let you get to know him and of course in the in the q a time we'll uh we'll get to learn both of them a little bit more but um vaughn can you tell us a little bit about about yourself hello everyone my name is vaughn harris i am a i am also a wheelchair user and um I was uh, born with a rare form of cerebral palsy, but it was really not really clear that I even had it at the time of my birth. And then, um, you know, my stages of development from walking were, were a little slowed, but um, it didn't really affect me until because I used to walk. And then when I was at the age around seven or eight, I had an operation because I used to walk on my toes like a ballerina. And around the time of seven or eight, they decided they wanted to change that. and then. 
that operation just went awry and um it caused the muscles of my legs to tighten and all of that which was probably due to the the cp and um so then i started using crutches and canes and ultimately wheelchairs you know throughout high school and college and so on and so forth so i've been a, a wheelchair user now for roughly around 30 to 40 years so uh so it's been a, a challenge in that day-to-day existence living in new york city but you know it is what it is i um I am also an advocate for people with disabilities and all types of disabilities, not just mobility ones, um, because that's part of my role at my job where I am a DEI specialist and I have to consider all types of people in all types of communities, you know, from LGBTQ to the Asian community, women, you know, Blacks and Latinos and, and everybody. So I think that it's important to be an advocate for not only myself, but also others with disabilities. And I'm also a podcaster. You know, I have a show. Um, I'm also a filmmaker and I've done a lot of different things. My background is advertising. So, you know, I'm, I'm a mix of a little bit of everything. You know, Vaughn, you, you mentioned a lot of things there. And, and you know, we, we talk uh, in culture a lot these days about identity. Um, can you kind of talk about your identity and the intersectionality and how that affects what you do both in your career and all of the uh the advocacy that you talked about all of my things uh well you know for me i don't i've never it's been it's weird for me because i've never really identified myself as disabled I, yes i am a person with a disability but i don't ever see that as a box i need to check off because one the minute i roll into the room you can tell and and so it's never one of those things where i could not disclose it, but it was also one of those situations where I don't feel like it's important to the conversation because what I'm bringing to the table is, is is my talents, my expertise in certain things, and and that's what I'm about. It's not necessarily about my disability. Yes, it's a part of who I am, but I'm so much more than that. And so my role in advocacy for people with disabilities is to let the world know that we're so much more than than just that. It's a part of who we are. Yes, it's our lifestyle, as as Danny mentioned earlier, but it's it's not what makes us the people that we are. Yes, we've learned a lot about it, and we're we're one of the most adaptable people you will ever meet because the world is not created for us. In fact, there are so many barriers that really are against us. But what I've learned as a person with a disability is the fact that you have to come up with a way. If there's an obstacle, you have to figure a way around it, you know, in order to make your life livable and, and the lives of your family and your friends. You know, and those obstacles are something that I want to talk a, a lot more about. I already see some questions, so um, mm-hmm. we'll we'll uh, set that aside for just a minute. Um, but you mentioned several terms in there, uh, specific words. Can you talk about why terminology and language is important? Well, for me, I think that it's 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 about affirming. It's about affirming us. So instead of saying you know, disabled person, you say a person with a disability or just to say someone is disabled. We're more than just disabled, we're people. So it's always good to start with people and then disability. So that's why we always use people with disabilities instead and of disabled. Is that we hear the the term um, uh, person first or identity first? So that's what you're talking about in that sense, yes. right? Absolutely. Got it. I want to jump into uh, to some of these questions right away. Um, I feel like 
uh, several of these topics are going to uh, weave their way in. But um, but let's go ahead and jump into the the first question. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, is asking, how can the outdoors be made more accessible, such as crosswalks, sidewalks, and other outdoor areas? And Danny. So, yeah, this is a great question. And um, something that I have been thinking about for a long time now is, uh, it's something that's majorly overlooked, gravel. We don't do gravel. <laughs> Our casters, which are the small wheels in the front part of the wheelchair, they dig in and they get stuck. So you'll find gravel at, you know, kind of outdoor um, venues, you know, sometimes bars or restaurants will have um, gravel or parking lots. I have um, a garden center down the road from me. The whole garden center is all gravel. Um, so I literally can't navigate through there. And like I said before, um, we get very limited coverage from insurance in terms of what types of wheelchairs we can get. And to be able to navigate on gravel, we have to purchase very expensive equipment that we, you know, to be able to navigate on that kind of terrain. So I really wish more attention would be paid in particular to, um, to surfaces. Um, I'm okay with like a very fine kind of gravel, hard packed. That's okay. But, um, anything more than that? I mean, I'm sure Vaughn probably has the same experience. So that's a big one for me. All right, Mandy. Where I work in Cincinnati, Ohio, we have some, um, especially in the areas near the agencies who provide services for individuals with disabilities and areas where local residents have requested such modifications. Uh, we might have, we might find talking and flashing crosswalk signals and there are bumps on the curbs that provide a tactile surface for a person with vision loss using a white cane for orientation and mobility. And I was also under the impression that these bumps also provide better traction for wheeled devices, such as wheelchairs, scooters, and strollers. And I'm actually curious if that's true. All right, we may add that in as a as a question, um, just to keep that uh, that conversation going, because I think that's very important. But let's uh, let's continue with the with the panelists here, Laura. I just wanted to. Um... Yeah, Mandy hit a lot of what I was thinking with the with the with the crosswalks and the auditory and um other countries do it so differently and it's so it's so interesting to see and it can be different from city to city or sometimes within a city block to block. Um I'd like to see a lot more consistency in our outdoor. And uh Brendan I think this is a great discussion. <clears throat> I know that the law, um, they have specific laws that apply to people with wheelchairs. I know um, people that have MS or multiple, you know, like multiple sclerosis um, for many years. And, um, you know, a lot of times they aren't able to drive. So I was helping someone that had that issue. Um, 
but I, I noticed that, you know, like in Texas, um, a lot of things are accessible, um, ramps and things like that. So um, it's really important to kind of consider anyone in that space um, that would be using the ramp, that it's at the right incline, so it's not too steep, which can not be accessible and can be very difficult to manage. And then also things like, um, you know, I know my daughter um, every week, um, they have events. And so really, it depends on if the event is accessible, if the incline is accessible. So, you know, that's that can be very difficult. And I've, I've definitely seen that, um, where that can be a challenge. Um, I have friends that had kids from a long time ago that one child had CP, a very severe CP. And so I had to see them kind of navigate through that, how difficult that was in a world that um, doesn't always include people and they don't think about those things and the challenges. I'm hoping that we keep catching up with this and that we keep working towards things being more accessible, um, especially private business owners and things like that in particular. Great. And and uh, Vaughn, your comments on this. Well, you know, I, as I was thinking about what everyone has said about it, because for me, just like Danny, there are many times I'm pay, paying for different features and things to happen on my wheelchair. My wheelchair has never been paid for by my insurance company because they think it's too high in expense. I usually pay out of pocket for the chairs that I use because my chairs are custom and they can cost, you know, anywhere from fifteen dollars to $3,000 based on what I'm trying to get done to the chair to make it easier for me to access because I live in New York City and I'm on sidewalks and streets and and there is I'm not going from a car to the location I'm going from a city street to a subway to a cab to you know just to motivate and navigate through the city so the terrain is always an issue there's a lot of you know slate sidewalks that are broken and you got to bump over them and do all these things and there are gravel and cobblestone spaces so you know depending on the city so there are a lot of things that one, we have to navigate through, but it also damages your chair over time. So there's a constant need for, you know, repairs and, and, and modifications. And to, to Danny's point also, I've, I've traveled several times and my chair goes in the cargo hole with the strollers. And a lot of times when they bring it back to me, once I get ready to deplane, there's something broken. At least, you know, seven out of the 10 times that I fly. So I'm always concerned about, well, what am I going to get when they, when they bring it back to me? How is it going to be? And will I have to get it fixed where I, wherever I'm traveling to, you know? So it's, it's always a concern and a consideration. I just, I wish that we could do more legislatively. And I think it has to come down to, you know, urban design of things and, and, and development of these cities and properties. Cause it's more, it, you know, and when you're talking about a ramp, that's one great, piece but if the elevation of the ramp is wrong you're still going to need assistance or you know if the doorways aren't wide enough you still can't get in there or if you can get inside a location but you can't get to the bathroom what is the point so there are so many different things and and i like going to the beach and i i have now been looking for beaches that have accessibility so that i can go down to the water and i'm not just sitting on the boardwalk because sand is a is a barren killer for for a wheelchair and it, it causes all kind of other problems so we try to stay away from putting our wheelchairs in sandy locations so those are always things to think about too um, i'm gonna add add to the question a little bit so forgive me for going off script just for a moment but uh you talked about travel and um you know a couple of the issues that you face and uh both vaughn and danny i i just wanted to ask you about you know 
the experience. I, w- I want people to understand. So Vaughn, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're traveling somewhere and your chair is damaged. What happens when you get there and your chair's damaged and you're in another state or another country? You you automatically have to look for a, a, a resource to get it repaired. If it's a, hopefully it's something minor, nothing in major, because then you'll have. If it's a major uh, problem, then you're gonna have to have the battle with the airline because. And then they, now they make you fill out a questionnaire because this has happened so often. They make you fill out a questionnaire about your device before you get on the plane. You know, so that if something happens to it, then they can say, okay. Well, this was already broken on your chair. This was already a problem. So they try to get the out there. But now, you know, at least you have some defense to say, well, I checked off all these boxes and nothing was wrong with my device when I got on this plane. So now we have a problem. But these are all things to have to consider. And, you know, once again, it's a for people with disabilities, it's about adaptability and planning ahead. We can never just spontaneously go on a trip without knowing one where we're going, knowing what's there, knowing what we got to walk or roll into in any kind of situation, because you just don't know. You got to be prepared for any obstacle or barrier all the time. And Danny, these, these parts for these chairs, is this just something you get at Walgreens? Yeah. So I'm really glad you said that because, um, I think there's a misconception where the airlines or other individuals think, well, we'll just give them a loaner chair. So problem solved. Actually, no. <laughs> Our chairs for actually for people who, you know, use the wheelchair every single day, um, these chairs are built custom to our bodies. They caught they are worth upwards of anywhere from, you know. Two to $30,000. Um, if we sit in the wrong kind of chair, we can develop pressure sores. We can develop contractures in our muscles or bones. Um, we can get seriously injured. And our, also our, fun, our fun ability to function is reduced. You know, if we can't um, sit and operate our chairs comfortably, we liter- there's tasks that we literally can no longer do. Um, so no, you can't just go to a Walmart and grab a spare part. It doesn't work like that. Um, I should also mention that wheelchair repairs take ages. They take ages, six months or more. So typically, I mean, some people might get lucky, but typically it takes ages. So you are out of commission for months. And this could disrupt your work life, your home life, your health. Um, it's a really important issue um, that needs more solutions, frankly. Thank you, Danny, for that. And uh, let's let's go ahead and jump to the next question. I feel like this uh, this topic is probably going to come back up. But uh, but next question. All right, uh, Mike Beardmore from Bedford, UK, asks, are there any less common PC accessories that have been a major help to uh, you? For example, screen readers, Braille keyboard, haptic mice, foot pedals. Mandy. For me, um, speech feedback or a screen reader for reading, especially lengthy passages, and in general, Larger text, bold text, increased contrast, and magnification are helpful. 
Uh, many of these features are now built into the mainstream PCs, smartphones, and tablets, and I just think that's wonderful. And I also train individuals to use adaptive aids such as screen readers, braille displays, and note takers, trackball mouse, or other input devices like switches. And there's also specialty one-handed keyboards and uh, one-hand typing features on braille displays, braille devices. And Mandy went the direction I threw my uh, name in there as well, but that's one of the things that I wanted to comment on is make sure that you understand all the capabilities that your device has built in. Um, a lot of people, there's a there's usually an accessibility section in the settings of whatever device you're using, and most people ignore that. They feel like, well, I, I you know, I don't need that. Um, so definitely uh, know what's there um, and know what is capable to be added. So Mandy already said all this, but, um, you know, switch access and Braille readers and, and all of these devices that are out there, just just know what's there and and know what, um, you know, know what helps you navigate your your digital life. Danny. Yeah, so I think I forgot to mention to you all that uh, I do have paralysis in my hands, so I don't have um, fine motor control. Um, and I actually don't use speech recognition. I, I like to type, even though I have to type one letter at a time, Like it's, but I've gotten pretty fast at it. Um, but what I do really appreciate is um, touchscreen on my uh, on my laptop on my cell phone. Um, and uh, I yeah, I'd, I'd like to see um, more accessories developed to be able to type with your hands. Um, so for example, you know, like a cuff with a stick or something, that's kind of one that exists on the market, but I do wonder if there could be other options. And Brendan. I just wanted to add to another thought. For deaf people, um, they have microphones that have captioning, so they kind of capture that. Um, so there's also this, so you have like this device here. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. <clears throat> and it can, um, it's kind of for the phone. It's very, it adds to the phone. You can plug it in and that's wonderful. Um, I don't have to lug around huge device. It's very compact. Um, so that's one thing that you you can use as well. Another thought was, Another challenge, and this is a little bit off topic, but, um, you know, for adaptive equipment, it's actually amazing what they have. Um, another thought is sometimes they'll have things will things that I can hear and see, like for, let's say, if something on the screen, um, that makes it more accessible. So just a couple of thoughts. Uh, I'll send it over to you now. All right. And Laura? The one thing I did want to mention is that you need to make sure that if you are a provider, and you're, particularly when you're talking about screen readers on the PC, there is a fundamental difference in the architecture. And I just actually learned this not too long ago between JAWS, Windows Narrator, and non visual desktop access or NVDA. There's literally a difference in what they're going to say and the way they read by architecture. And it's, um, I understand, I have a better understanding now of why it's hard for 
websites and things to be accessible to a screen reader across the board. But um, yeah, you you need to look at when you're when you're talking to somebody, you're trying to fix something for them. What exactly are they using? Arshid? I'm going to go with my audio interface as being one of those one-off type of devices that I feel it's kind of a savior for me because not only that I could bring in the audio of my phone or my computer, but um, I have my screen reader where I need it to be. So I feel that it it, it gives me a lot of uh, centralization with how media flows for me being uh, a person with vision loss. And... Um, Having the mute switch, for example, which is a Proco mute switch, there are various types of mute switch, uh, but my particular one is used by a XLR cable. And just for me, that is a lifesaver because I could be on a uh, contact center phone call, I could be on a Zoom meeting, I could be on any platform and have the same audio quality and I don't have to do anything as far as controlling it. So having that default audio centralization to just plug and play into, you know, a Mac computer or PC or uh, what have you, that, that having that in its own is a, a huge help, especially on the PC side. And then of course for screen readers, uh, JAWS screen reader is what I use with the fusion. So magnification, uh, high contrast and, uh, zooming in definitely is our good tool. Excellent. Let's go to the next question. And the next question coming in from Marty Anderson in Roseville, as far as sidewalks go rounded curbs or sharp corner curbs as a wheelchair user, is it awesome to get up a curb easily anywhere? Danny. Yeah, I love, personally, I love rounded anything. Um, even just rounded tables, rounded architecture, because I'm less likely to run into something and, you know, hurt myself. So I, I, I really like the seamlessness that rounded design provides for wheelchair users. And I would guess or other disabilities as well. I don't want to assume, but um, the best curb cuts I've seen recently were in Pittsburgh and they went around the entire uh, corner. So it was rounded around the whole corner so that you could, and it was sloped all the way down. Um, so you could kind of enter the slope at any angle and go either right or left without having to like, make sharp maneuvers with in your wheelchair if that makes sense interesting uh vaughn that would be so i mean i prefer rounded curves too uh just but you know unfortunately living in new york there's not enough space for a lot of that all the time so basically i'll just say excuse me i'll take what i can get <clears throat> sadly <laughs> um Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead to the next question. And it's from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. When looking to hire, how can we avoid inadvertently making it harder throughout the process? Brendan. Oh, sorry, I was typing up something. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so that is a good question. So I am a job seeker. 
and I'm recruiter. And so let me put out some advice there. I've seen lots of different things. So one thing is it's important. Help the the person communicate the best way they can. Some companies or people who are new, like my job right now is making sure when we have the interview and then how do we get the person into the interview? How explain what that is. Every time I explain the process, hoping the person will accept the job or not and accept all the phases of the job. Like some positions you have where it's stretched out. Maybe they'll, they'll a week later, I find an interpreter and then the interpreter is there and it's going some, you know, I have an interview next week and I finally got an interpreter for that. So it's set up and sometimes you have to wait a little longer. Make sure it's accessible for everyone. If they can't hear, or maybe they have, if it's on site, make sure that the room is accessible itself. Make sure the person can actually get on site. They can get into the building. They can get up to the room, whatever it is. And also have an interpreter in person. That's harder because, again, sometimes you have to schedule. There's no last minute, 24 hour, less than 24 hours interpreters. Usually it's three or four, even five days to get an interpreter. Virtual is easy because you're picking from interpreters nationwide or, or worldwide. But it depends on where the company but uh, contracts with, sometimes they have interpreters who they can get last minute. Sometimes they can't. It depends on who they contact with. And ask the person, like we said before, ask the person. It's very important to ask the person. You know, I'll just add real quick that um, there are a lot of resources out there with information about uh, inclusive hiring. Uh, they're a little bit harder to find. Um, so you might have to do a little bit of research to find those um, those examples and those articles, uh, but please dig around and and look for those. Uh, make sure you're aware. Um, and Brendan said it right. Just ask them, you know, just, just find out what they need through the interview process and through the hiring process. Um, they typically know. They know what they need. They've lived their whole life. Um, so they'll, they'll be able to, to help you navigate that uh, question. So, okay, next question. From Mandy Van Cleve here on our panel and from Monroe, Ohio. Do the curb bumps provide better traction to wheeled mobility devices such as wheelchairs and scooters? Danny? Back to the curb cuts. So, uh, you know, interestingly, those bumps do not work for me. Um, they actually, um, they're quite jarring for, for me as a wheelchair user and they can trigger my spasms. Um, if I start spasming, spasming, my legs will shake and my feet will fall off the footrest or my legs will even just straighten out um, and can, my muscles will contract. So I used to have a, um, a blind caregiver. And when her and I, her and I would go out, and walk, you know, going around, walking around, and we'd get to these curb cuts and I would, we would just joke about it and kind of get in our funny little pretend fights and be like, oh, this, I'd be like, oh, I, gosh, I hate these things. It really messed me up. And she'd be like, oh, I love this. I'm not going to get run over now. So it's interesting to see how what one accessibility feature can help a certain population, but could hinder another. Um, but we always want to try to find those solutions that could work for everybody as much as possible. I have also seen um, on curb cuts, kind of just the straight 
uh, ridges that go down. Um, and those seem better than the bumps to me. Excellent point on universal design. Vaughn. There has to be more universal design. Unfortunately for me, where I am, my problem with curb cuts is that there's always, I live in a climate where there's snow or water in them. And, and you just, you don't know what you're getting into when you go into that curb cut. And those bumps, I agree with Danny on it. You know, because for me, I get the jostling for me, it always impacts my lower back. You're going to get all every bump, every knot, every bing. You're going to you're going to feel that later. If you don't feel it right away, you're going to definitely feel it later. It'll either be in your back or in your shoulders or somewhere in your body. It's going to affect you. So there just needs to be uh, I, I'm thankful to have the curb cuts. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, 10 times out of 10, there's somebody standing in the curb cup when you're trying to go through it anyway. So you got to get past them, too. So there's just there's just so many things that need to change in, in that design. I almost think that's an urban planning thing. Once again, that there needs to be a more universal design. And they actually need to have some of us, people who actually use these curb cuts, making the decisions before they go out and make them. Because how do they know what effects these things would have on us as the people that actually need to use them? Excellent. Okay, let's go to the next question. And it's coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What cities, states, and locales are leading the way in accessibility? All right, there's no hands raised. So if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, uh, call on Vaughn and Danny, our special guests, to uh, to comment on that. Danny, you had already kind of mentioned one city and, and some examples there. You know, I find mixed results wherever I go. I'm I'm not really, I'm not entirely sure that there's one city that's that's hitting everything. Um, Southern California, San Diego is is pretty accessible, um, but a lot of that probably just has to do with the weather and the climate. <laughs> um, but in terms of like urban planning, that getting around on the streets down there, it was pretty good. But um, I'm not sure, Vaughn. Do you uh, do you think there's cities that are more accessible than others? I would also think about the the subway systems and the transportation. That would be a big part of it too. Yeah, I personally think that DC is one of the most accessible cities on in the Northeast for me, um, and and that includes the the metro system because. You know, we we would love to be able to get around quickly and, and easily, especially in avoiding having to take cabs or special cabs when we can just hop in and out of the subway easily. I would love that. But I think D.C. stands out for me. It's definitely not New York, but we're definitely making some strides in New York because New York is one of the few places where we now have a chief accessibility officer that is part of our um, New Jersey, uh, our transit system here. So and he's in charge of not only the trains, but also the buses. So he's doing his best to make, and he's also a wheelchair user. So I think that there are gonna be some definite strides made in New York, but it's gonna take years. And a lot of these cities are older and there are a lot of things that they get godfathered out of because of the age of the city and the structure of these cities. But I, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, once, once disability is normalized more, and I hate that term, but it's just a fact. Once our disability is normalized and people see us living our active and full lives, they'll understand that we need, you know, a 
accurate and, and, and good accessibility across the board. Laura? Yeah, um, I don't think any city is the most accessible for everybody right. um, because there's so many different ways that accessibility needs to be thought about. Um, two that I talk about a lot are from a distance standpoint are Eugene, Oregon and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I know I have, I know at least one person that lives in Chapel Hill and from a blindness perspective, their transit is pretty adequate. And part of it is that there is no excess cost, even to the excess, their paratransit for people with disabilities. It's actually, if you're, if you're a resident of that area, it's actually free. And they've said that, um, my girl that my girlfriend that lives in uh, North Carolina has said that it's pretty. Once you get in the hang of it, it's pretty easy to um, access the system once you're registered and understand how that all works. Brendan, yeah, uh, I'll add a little bit here. I know I travel a lot for work um, and I notice more accessibility is the bigger the metro areas, there's more accessibility. West and East Coast, great, but in the middle of the, the, the country, not so much. And you have to be considerate about, considerate about disabilities. Now in Texas, oh goodness. Uh, so it depends on who's running the state. And that's kind of ironic there, but you know, wheelchairs, um, we have some right now who, he, they're in a wheelchair, but they don't care about the people in wheelchairs. So there's no requirements really or no standards. But if you look at California, California is great. I grew up in California in the 1980s and we had um, the Delta, you could you could get in the Delta train and everything, you get picked up. It didn't matter what or who you were, your senior citizen or whatever, you were able in this transit system to get picked up and transported to like the airport. Now, this is California. And some cities, unlike New York, are great, or who have subways who are, but some people who are old, they can't get down on the stairs. And I know, you know, in New York, I get it. There's no elevator and can't get down the stairs, but yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. Thank you, Tim. Next question uh, I have, actually. How do you feel about the Americans with Disabilities Act is it really meeting your needs or is there something that needs to be changed? Danny. So the thing I have to say about this is we just, we really need to work on preserving it um, because there have been a lot of challenges to the ADA recently, um, specifically around putting the burden on enforcement on the people with disabilities. Um, but not just that, I mean, we, uh, there was some legislation uh, that never went through, but um, where they were trying to um, make people with disabilities give businesses uh, like a 30-day warning or something before filing a complaint um, and going through this whole process, this bureaucratic process, um, which which I think is very problematic. First of all, what, would that process be accessible? 
can people with I think we uh, did we lose Danny? Is that just me? Yeah, you lost Danny. Okay, let's go to Michael, and if Danny comes back, we'll jump back at her. So, Michael. Yes. Um, with the ADA, um, that was formed in 1990. And in 1990, um, that means 33 years ago, right? So it's an old bill, an old law. 33 years ago, this happened. Um, and there's quite a big difference. So, for example, um, it's not only um, for wheelchairs, but for deaf people, lots of different people with disabilities are included in ADA. One thing that really, um, really is annoying and really is the, the lobbyists, um, the lobby, um, they should do, they're trying to do everything they can to prevent specific um, additions um, to the ADA. For example, like movies with captioning. Um, they want to try to move that because there's a, a lobbyist there from Hollywood trying to get that removed. Um, I'm sure that applies to every type of disability. So um, it's time for the ADA to really be revamped um, or maybe do some updating, um, you know, and, you know, keep it, keep them out of it as much as possible, right? Who don't have our best interests at heart. All right, let's go to the next question. Michael Coffer from New York, New York. Uh, when they build a new store, why do they add an elevator? There are like four steps to the main floor. Why can't they design to make sure the ramp is included instead of portable elevator? And Michael. Yes. So. Thank you. Um, one thing that really bothers me is um, a store that I've been to recently. Um, they only have three steps, really just three. Um, it's a brand new store, brand new design, completely renovated. And, um, they have like, it's very, you know, fancy. They have this glass elevator and it just goes one little floor. I mean, I want to say not even, I mean, it's three steps. So it probably goes maybe four feet. Um, and I thought, boy, that seems absurd. You know, why would you make, why wouldn't you just do a ramp? Why would you do an elevator for that and incorporate that in the, the design? Um, so I was there working and the elevator, you know, what if it's broken at the time when you're there and, you know, what happens? I feel so bad about that because really, you know, they really want to be able to teach. We really need to tell these stores that they can't just, you know, say, well, we'll just lift them to the next floor. That's really not going to work, you know? Um, they can really ask that of people. Um, they don't understand why so many stores really, you know, do this very short distance for an elevator when they really couldn't include a ramp in their initial design. So, you know, I just always think about that when I see that. I mean, and really, does that apply to ADA um, a, under reasonable accommodation? I mean, that's a good question, right? Vaughn. I think how they, what happens in those kinds of situations, it becomes a space saver. Because if you really think about it, putting a ramp in requires a certain amount of space for, you know, elevation and in, in, in the curvature, or if, if there is a curve of some sort, and definitely for elevation in order to make it usable for someone in a chair, for say, or someone who would need that 
kind of service, as opposed to the elevator where you would just get in and be lifted up to the space that you need to get into. And unfortunately for someone in a, in a, in a wheelchair that could not, that doesn't have the accessibility or the capability to, to get up, fold the chair up and carry it up those three stairs or something, or if there's no one to assist, uh, those three stairs are like a mountain. Great point. Let's go on to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, many large venues like arenas and stadiums have introduced sensory rooms where those with sensory sensitivities can relax during a highly stimulating event. Should event producers take sensory sensitivities into account from the start? Laura. That's a great question, Douglas. And I know that you're always thinking about these things. Um, we're actually going to be talking about neurodiversity next week. This might be a really great question to bring up with next Saturday's um, panel list. Great point. Just a quick plug for uh, for our show next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about neurodiversity. Uh, so we hope we hope to get a bunch of you back next week and and listen to that conversation. So, um, all right, let's go ahead to the next question. And it's from Samuel Nordovic in Norway. In your experience, why use a manual or motorized wheelchair? Pros and cons. Danny. Yeah, so I use both. Um, and I typically use a manual wheelchair when I know I'm going to be on smooth level surfaces. Um, because I'm a quadriplegic, I have some paralysis in my upper body, some weakness in my triceps, my shoulders, my hands. So my ability to use a manual wheelchair is limited due to that. Um, I love using a manual wheelchair around my house because the footprint is smaller. Um, when I use a power wheelchair is when I want more off-road capabilities or I know I'm going to a city with broken sidewalks and cobblestones. Um, and I also use a power wheelchair if I want some of the uh, features such as being able to tilt, recline, um, pull my legs out. Um, you can put your body in more positions in a power wheelchair, which is pretty nice. Um, and yeah, so that's how it works for me. There's also, I want to mention, there's also some devices that are um, kind of hybrid. So there are some power add-on um, items or um, that can kind of give your manual wheelchair a boost. And I really like those. Can I jump in here too a little bit? Um, I personally use a, a manual wheelchair and... Um, because I, I, I like to use as much of my body as I can use in, uh, in, in, in getting around. And I, you know, but I, I like, to Danny's point, I like all the new capabilities and things you can add to it. Like you can add motors, motors to these manual chairs now. And the UK seems to be better at that because I see more of their chairs being adapted, adapted to attaching those kinds of devices. But, you know, we're making some strides for sure. But it's very slow because that technology needs to change too. And once again, I think it, it's going to take more of us sitting in these rooms and making these decisions as opposed to just these people who want to, quote unquote, 
help us because they're just making a lot of money off of it. Because why do these devices cost so much money in the first place? Great. Thanks, Vaughn. Uh, let's go ahead to the next question. It's Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA, asking, when I invite a friend with mobile limitations to my residential setting, what accommodations can I make for them? And how can I be sure that I'm preserving their dignity by not overreaching by allowing them to have their desired autonomy? And if I may impose on uh, on Vaughn again to continue that conversation. I just be clear about what they what they're getting ready to come into. Let them know what what your situation is in their home. They're not expecting you to make major structural modifications. They just need to understand, you know, there may be some some accessibility issues if there are any. And, you know, but to let them know that you're going to do your best to accommodate them. I would think. And just leave it up to them. Don't make the decision for them. Don't overreach to the point where they start to feel uncomfortable because now you're doing so much to incorporate them into the space, but it it kind of makes you feel a little iso it's isolating in that way. Okay. Um, let's go ahead to the next question. Marty Anderson from Roseville. Where do you feel the most uncomfortable while out in public in your day-to-day -day lives at this point? Uh, I'm going to reach out to uh, uh, to Harshid for a minute, if you don't mind. And, um, uh, you know, we, we've had this conversation a little bit in the past, but I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Well, you know, with, with transportation, I think is a big thing. Uh, being... Living, I lived in Orlando before, and having a 24-hour service versus limitation uh, with transportation in my city now, um, that definitely makes, I think, a struggle for me personally. Um, and the performance of having something like Uber or Lyft, where you could get to places, but at the same time, how accommodating are they? And um, m one quick story, I had a incident just this past week where the driver threw the walker in the back of his trunk and as you said things get broken and uh that's just one example of things do get broken it doesn't matter if you're flying or not but um you know th those are some of the limitations or struggles that i've seen and danny i just want to mention that um i mean i would agree transportation is probably one of the most uncomfortable toughest things that I have to deal with when I'm out in public, especially when it comes to on-demand transportation. As a wheelchair user who requires a ramp to get into a vehicle, I am unable to transfer into seats. Um, that That's my biggest struggle. And I've been stranded because of the lack of accessible Ubers, Ubers, Lyfts, taxis, et cetera. I've also been just driven past uh, bus, even bus drivers have driven past me because I don't feel like to, there's a couple extra steps sometimes to get the wheelchair users on to the bus. Um, but I would also say that um, it's not so much place and environment as social attitudes. Um, it's social attitudes that are really what make me the most uncomfortable when they are inappropriate or out of touch. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. And um, 
let me pull a little bit of an audible. Can uh, Mitch, can we go to um, the last question in the list? Sure. Uh, it's coming in from Marty Anderson in Roseville. What are you going to do to celebrate Disability Pride Month coming up? And uh, Vaughn, let me let me jump to you on that. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I have to. Uh, that's part of my job description at, at work. I have to celebrate every group and all of their, you know, anything that they celebrate, I have to celebrate and champion. So for Disability Pride, I've been looking into it. One, I have I have a cool new shirt I'm going to wear and I'm going to in LinkedIn and everywhere that I could possibly post it in social. I'm going to talk about disability stories for people, activists, influencers, legislations, anything that's going to be changed, I'm going to spotlight and highlight in all of my social aspects. And, um, you know, I'm I'm living the story. So if you if you want to see what disability pride is, just take a look, you know, and, and knowing all of you and people like Danny, who's just a champion in, in the cause. And um, and even what you do, Tim, and, and, and your lovely wife, Mandy, we are all in this game and, and just tell these stories and, and, and live your best life. And that's what I'm going to do for Disability Pride. Thank you, Vaughn. And I encourage everybody to go out and, and do your research, follow social media influencers that have disabilities and, uh, and find a way to celebrate yourself. So um, please come back and join us next Saturday for Accessibility Saturdays. We're going to be talking about neurodiversity, cognitive disabilities, and mental health. Uh, these are areas that that intersect with a lot of disabilities and and affect a lot of a lot of folks. Um, I do want to thank our producers today uh, that are asking the questions. Without you, uh, this show would have been very short. So thank you for uh, spending your time asking questions. And to our lovely guests, Vaughn and Danny and, and the rest of the panel, but uh, thank you for, for being on. And um, uh, just a little bit of, of trivia for today. The questions that were asked would have uh, covered 44,000 547 miles. That's the distance our questions uh, travel today. That's 71,691 kilometers. Um, if you want just another reference, uh, the number of bananas for scale, that would be 352 million bananas. Uh, so that would circumvent the earth 1.8 times. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. And uh, we hope to see you on the rest of office hours all week, but especially next Saturday. Thank you very much. Thank you all. And just a note to our first time host. Good job, Tim, Laura. I always enjoy the whisper part. I want to be part of the whispering.